Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome to the Troxell Podcast. I'm Evan Troxell. And in this episode of the podcast, I talk with Kat Dovjenko. Kat was originally trained as an architect and currently consults for a small research lab at Google's Idea Workshop for the Built Environment. Three years ago is when she made the pivot into tech. And in addition to working at Google in her spare time, works alongside three other investors to lead a syndicate of architects and builders that invests in AEC-related startups. She's also part of the Architechies Group, which is a band of architects now working in the tech industry and helping others do the same. And I'll have a link to that in the show notes, so make sure to check that out. A lot of Kat's work focuses on research, and specifically right now, she's interested in the research around workplace trends, hybrid offices, all of the things I think that a lot of companies are thinking about as they move back into the physical environment away from this remote environment or what that hybrid model might look like and what the trends that she's seeing really are versus a lot of the buzzwords that people are talking about or maybe just going deeper than the surface layer. So that was a great topic of conversation. We also got into a few of her ideas around pop-up infrastructure and some new forms of general contracting models that are on the horizon. We talked a bit about prefab modular, specifically ADUs in this case, and how some architects are thinking of space as a product. And then going a little bit further and talking about the intentionality of shelf life, meaning it's not as long as some of the larger projects that we see because they serve specific purposes for a specific amount of time. So overall, I think we hit a lot of great topics and there is a lot of room to grow these conversations out of this. And I'm really happy to present our conversation to you now. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Kat Dovjenko. Kat, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're here. This is going to be so much fun. I'm glad to be here. What I wanted to tell you first was I really appreciate what you do on Twitter. I think that your approach to Twitter is different than most people in that, first of all, I, th I feel like you really pay attention to people, which is excellent. I mean, you're, you're constantly looking for who is doing what rather than just the what that's going on. And I, I, I like that. And then I also feel like you ask a lot of questions on Twitter, right? And, and it creates engagement. It creates the opportunity for conversation. And I feel like most people misuse Twitter in that it's a one-way communication. And it's just like, mm -hmm. here's what's happening, right? And, and it's not an invitation to communicate. And I, I just wanted to let you know, I, I really appreciate your approach there, whether it's intentional or not. It might just be who you are. But I feel like it's kind of a... a a refreshing take on using these platforms. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a I've been on Twitter for many years now and I have met some of the most amazing people there and I think a lot of time <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed this but many times I'll I'll reply to venture capitalists or people in tech yeah. and I might have mentioned something where this isn't a new idea or, hey, you should talk to this person or have you looked at this particular idea simply because my background is very different to theirs and I'm able to at least link. So I really do enjoy linking people and ideas together. So that's probably what you're seeing. It is. It is. And I and I think there's what's great about that is like it's it's totally selfless, right? Like it's it's like, oh, because you have this diverse way of thinking and this background, you're just connecting dots and you're not looking for much out of it. I mean, you might be getting something out of it, but at the same time, like that's the whole idea I think behind a platform like that is to link communication and to link ideas and to be the sum is greater than the parts. It has the potential to be. So, um I appreciate the way that you use that. And I and I feel like like you, I've met so many great people on there, so many guests of this podcast, yourself included, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that um it, it does serve that function really well. And I do feel like our community, if I could call it that, is there, right? More than more than just about any other place. So that that's also mm -hmm. a great reason for people to really pay attention to it. Like, I don't know if you're very intentional about curating lists of people or anything. 
I have like one list that I pay attention to on mine and, and I, I, it's the architects sort of people, right? It's, it's that community that, that I do really pay attention to in a particular list and everything else is just kind of everything else. But it, it, I'm so happy that it gives us that opportunity to connect without borders and, um, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. It's been, it's been such a good run and I really do appreciate it. And I don't know about you, but I found that over the past probably year, and maybe this is just because I'm more attuned to it, but over the past year and a half or so, there's just been this explosion of conversation around architecture, construction, technology, and just an explosion of people on that platform. So I don't know whether that's just because I've been more attuned or whether that's actually the fact that there's this great interest that's coming through. Yeah. My history on, I can't remember when I started using Twitter, but I do know that for a while there was a really good run going, which was around, it was called Architox. It was a special kind of hashtag. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was just architectural bloggers. It wasn't anything specific to tech and architecture or anything like that, which I do agree has really kind of really bubbled to the surface in the last year yeah. for sure, if not more. But um, yeah, I want to say it was probably, I don't know, six years ago, something like that, where this Architox blog community, where people were really like, like there was a, a Google sheet with topics and people blogged wow. about the topics and, and, and let release them on a schedule so that you could get a variety of experiences and kind of consume all those at once from people all over the world. Um, and I felt, fu- I felt like, like, where else could that happen? It's, it's pretty amazing that, that, that. Right. That is there and and that it has obviously transformed over time and there's different groups that come up and go down and you know people lose interest and gain interest and it's fun to watch those trends too but I I do agree that it's there's this definite resurgence or this you know initial surge that we've seen in the last couple of years it's really taken off on the architectural technology you know construction contact kind of stuff happening for sure. Right. And I like the fact that you have conversations, like at least that's, you're right, it is something that I try to do. I don't know if it's been intentional, other than it's just general curiosity. But I found with so much of of Twitter, it's either you're talking about something good that's happened to you, uh, you know, kind of uh, broadcasting how professional or how advanced or how disciplined or or how great you are, or you're complaining. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so the the middle ground of actively trying to have discussions or meet people or link people or link ideas together has been really where I think it should go and where I've been tried I've tried to do like I have done the occasional kind of like look at me I'm so successful post (laughs) (laughs) which I think we're all a little guilty of and I have certainly done a complaining about I don't know like an airline or something which is the common complaint on Twitter but uh Generally, generally, I've I've tried to be a little bit uh, more open and more conversational. Yeah, it, it, in that regard, it's very much like a real person, right? Like you do have these ups and you do have these downs, and they kind of all go in that one place, which is your Twitter feed. But it's right. not like that on other platforms for the most part. It's not like that on Instagram. Instagram is very much the good stuff, unless your account is all about the bad stuff all the time, right? And so right. I think it is kind of a, a better way to see the complete person as much as that's possible or impossible <laughs> online. Um, but, but because, yeah, it lets you put out a quip, whether that's good or bad. It's it's a quip. It, it's quick. It's small. It's short. And, it, and it's one of those things where you can you can put something out and not pay attention to the replies or you can put out in order to get lots of replies and, and generate that conversation. I don't know. There's There's a lot there to unpack. But you know, you, you talked a little bit about your curiosities that you've kind of uncovered on Twitter. And, and we, before the, the show, we started recording, you mentioned a few of those. Um, I, w- I would love to talk about some of these kind of curiosities that are bubbling to the top right now, specifically around the workplace trends that you're obviously very interested in from the Google side of things. I mean, it's, that's what you said that your lab is really paying attention to right now. So let's jump into that topic to kick things off. Yeah, workplace has been something I've been in, really in it for three years, maybe more now. And 
it's it's something that I think there's a lot of misconceptions about. Mm -hmm. And with COVID coming in, all of a sudden you have a lot of folks that are they may be saying they have kind of good intentions, but a lot of folks that are all of a sudden these experts on workplace. Uh, and I think generally I'm going to speak about workplace when it comes to tech work and knowledge work and uh, my experiences at Google and at the lab. And I don't by any means think they extend to every single workplace, but there are some really interesting things that I've learned over the past few years that I would love to share. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in this as well because I think, you know, from my day job point of view, it's mm -hmm. it's not unique in that there's lots and lots of architectural firms dealing with how they're going to go back to work, you know, quote unquote work. Because it, it's not right. to say work isn't happening. It's not to say that it isn't even maybe more productive now than it was before. Right? It's it's hard to say, mm -hmm. but 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 to me, it's it's interesting to kind of. This is something that's very real, very timely for a lot of people right now. So I'd love to see what some of these misconceptions are and maybe what the data is showing um, and talk about maybe some of the potential models that, that you're seeing come up. You know, the, this hybrid model is something obviously that mm -hmm. lots and lots of people are writing about and kind of positioning themselves as, as you know, presenting as experts in that way and, and what is going to work for sure and what is not going to work for sure. Obviously, there's a lot more nuance than that. So what are the kinds of things that you're seeing right now in your in your research? There's so much. So I'll, I'll probably start a little bit and I'll, I'll go in a roundabout fashion. So I apologize in advance that this may have no rhyme or reason, but I think in my head it makes a little sense. Um, I think there's this I think the first mis misconception is this idea that focus and collaboration are distinct things. Mm. So when I read some of this research that's coming out and some of it, most of it is really great. I, I think I have to preface, but some of it uh, distinguishes between all right, you're going to come into the office for three days a week and you're going to do only collaboration during those three days. And then for two days a week, you're going to be at home and you're going to do this deep focus work. But that's not actually how for most knowledge workers um, that, that that's not how it works, especially for people that are working in software engineering. You can imagine in software engineering, you can think of it as almost like you're working on a giant puzzle together. And you have different puzzle pieces and everyone has different pieces and it all has to kind of create an image. And the reality is you are working a little bit on your own and then you kind of work in collaboration. So the idea that collaboration and focus are, are super separate and that you can do collaboration in one place and focus in another place is actually probably a false idea, especially when it comes to knowledge workers and software engineers. Mm -hmm. So this is some of the work that we've been really tracking is understanding what are the nuances of how someone actually writes code or some, how someone actually does this sort of puzzle making or, or puzzle coming together. And so I think there is this really interesting world in which uh, a software engineer, and if there are software engineers listening, please let me know if this is incorrect. But mm -hmm. generally, a software engineer is writing, um, writing code and they're kind of heads down and working, but they'll come across something that they haven't seen before, or they'll come across a puzzle piece that they haven't really understood. And so they'll go, and usually if they're all working together in person, they'll just turn to the person beside them or someone that's close because they know that person maybe has familiarity with the same problem set. And they'll ask, hey, do you know this? Do you have this library? And so forth. And that allows them to unblock themselves very quickly because that's really the problem. You don't want your software engineer to be blocked by anything because then they can't continue. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that perhaps that there's this you know set collaboration time where they go all go into a meeting room is kind of a false idea. In fact, you probably don't want to put all your engineers in a meeting room. You really want to foster these quick micro collaboration moments. And what we're seeing is that some of those actually can happen, um, like kind of not in, in one place. So some of those things can actually happen when you just ping someone or grab on a quick call. So the, the idea that you need to be all in person to collaborate is, is very kind of general and broad. And there are subtle nuances in, in collaboration there that I think a lot of people have not really outlined in their work of return to office or in their kind of new workplace of the future sort of vision thinking. Do you feel like that the writing that's happening is really targeted towards software engineers, or do you feel like it's just general office work? 
I think so. The, the the writing right now is really targeted towards general office work, and of course, there's different personas. There's different people that you know. Some people have a ton of meetings. Some people have a lot of focus time. But I think yeah. generally, when it comes to like collaboration, you really want to be able to have like a low switching cost. So you're you want, actually want to be able to simultaneously allow for these micro moments of collaboration while also allowing for focus and like lowering the distractions. So mm. you're kind of in this really big challenge of how do you make sure that people feel comfortable to talk and to ask questions, but also at the same time, yeah. you want folks to to be able to be uh, focused. So there is a quite a conundrum and that's kind of the first misconception I have um, of, of the office. And that's the one. And then there's a few others that I'd, I'd love to deep dive as well. So before you jump into that, I have a question yeah. for you. What what do you think the best use of physical office space is going to to be? I mean, in, in the architecture realm, in the architectural office, it seems to me like you can accomplish this digitally, but it's not as fluid, mm-hmm. right? Which is like pinup space, layout space, model making stuff any kind of like group critique where where people can get mm-hmm. up and just stare at a wall and that body language that's transferred between mm-hmm. people without verbal communication is a big deal so i can i can see us being a lot more purposeful around what the physical office is really going to be best utilized for applying schedule and and all that kind of stuff to that i think is another problem set but it's kind of mm-hmm. like having a place to house the things that can only be done in that place becomes kind of an important exercise to determine what those things are. Right. I, it's a great question. And I think I will use like, I, I think I'll get to it at the very end. So okay. I'll do like a this is that roundabout way. part. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because I think like before we, like, I think that before we even start to figure out like what's the best use, I think that the, the, the TD Ella too long TLDR of it too long mm-hmm. degrade is basically that different types of work will require different types of offices and a general one size fits all kind of approach is probably not going to be the ideal, but there's a few things to get to. So I think with regards to knowledge workers, like workers in software and workers in architecture are are slightly different in the sense that architecture deals with the physical making of things. Mm -hmm. And it's probably more synonymous to hardware um, or industrial designers or hardware engineers, where they're actually kind of testing their prototypes and really working in in more or less the physical realm. And for those folks, it is really hard to do that fully remotely. It really is. And hands down, for the majority of people that are in kind of analyst or software engineer roles where they're not dealing with physical um, offices, there is a little bit of a different piece. So first misconception we had was kind of this idea of focus and collaboration, mm-hmm. which is on a spectrum. Um, I think the other one is uh, really interesting is this idea of the commodification of the office. So, you know, Google was a big pioneer of office space and it had this incredible office with bouncy castles and pool tables and amazing food. And at some point that became the norm where all these offices in, in Silicon Valley, at least, were trying to entice talent. And they were able to, A, entice talent and keep talent at the office longer. Yeah. And that was a really big benefit. And, and so the office really functioned as this sort of thing. Then you got WeWork and they were able to kind of get every, allow everybody to have that experience. Right. And now you have this kind of commodification where for knowledge workers, at least, that's just the assumed norm mm-hmm. that, you know, that, of course, I'm going to have food at the office. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. And when we talk about something like the hybrid model, which is coming into play, it's it's really popular right now, which is like kind of three days in the office, two days um, at home, or some sort of formula of this. Mm-hmm. I think what is the problem with that is that there's just everybody's going to do it. And there's still this commodification. So in order for you to entice top talent now, you have to be differentiating yourself on a completely new level. And I don't know what that is. So um, we go back to what is the point of a physical office? Well, I think in some level that has to be the point where it is to entice talent to stay or entice talent to join your company. And I don't know what that looks like. I have some theories, but it's definitely probably not a hybrid office because now that you have commodified this kind of experience, what is the next thing you want to do? So I think there's probably more interesting things to entice. So I don't know what that is. And uh, I think perhaps it's, Perhaps it's you're you're perhaps allowing people to 
uh, maybe moonlight more. Maybe it is you do, you know, there's a lot of these companies that are doing fully remote and that is certainly a benefit. That is a big differentiator for many of the big tech firms is now you're fully remote and you can go wherever. And every, you know, every six months we have a big meeting where we all meet together in person and here's how we work. And or I've seen a recent one um, of a company called Gumroad, where you're only actually working as kind of a super consultant. So you choose to work five hours a week at Gumroad, but then you're working maybe four hours a week in something else and so forth. And you get paid really well, but you are kind of part of almost like a guild-like structure. So wow. you're less a, less of a full-time employee and more of like kind of this um, part of this collective. And I think when we think about the future, it's going to be like kind of in this collective world, it's going to be decentralized. It's probably going to be lightweight. And these sort of new forms of employment, so to speak, might be the way to differentiate yourself, like far beyond an office. So maybe the office, maybe the whole idea of like, what's the best use of a physical office is perhaps that there's actually no best use. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about this whole hybrid office situation and that still is going to require some level of co-location, you know, proximity right. to an office or at least the ability to get there within X amount of time, you know, whether that's two hours or whatever, um, you know, plane flight, or whatever it is, uh, because that's still going to be you're, you're going to be like you said, the office has to be able to attract. It has to have this kind of magnetic quality to it to get people to right. want to be there versus this new space that they've created in the last, you know, year um and and created exactly maybe what they need or maybe maybe they realize it's not it's not what they want at all but there's definitely going to be kind of a, a layer of top talent that is only going to um be open to working for companies that are 100% remote because it gives them the most flexibility to work from wherever they want those companies that offer that 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 is what every other company is going to be competing against and that to me is it, you know when you start to talk about how companies are going to differentiate they really are going to have to kind of rethink all of that um i think it's going to go way beyond benefits right because a fully mm-hmm. remote company is going to offer fantastic benefits too right and so you have to start to really think how can we compete against a company that can pull the top talent from any location, because location doesn't matter, you're decoupling location from work. Mm-hmm. You're potentially decoupling time from work. Who cares when you do it, as long as you do it when you say you're going to do it? Because like you said, like I, I'd never heard of that Gumroad example before, but when you're talking about this super mm-hmm. consultant, you know, if somebody really has the capability to juggle multiple roles for less amount of time than a full-time role... Then, and and they have more interest, then that's going to serve, that's going to come up with some pretty amazing outputs because those are the people who are going to be able to connect dots between different levels of expertise, different buckets of information that mm-hmm. other people just don't have access to. That's a fascinating kind of turn of events that I didn't see coming um, because I was thinking about it from a physical versus remote only. But now that you start to kind mm-hmm. of further break down the day or the week into different segments that's that's a big big change yeah we there was a a few future visioning work that i did uh, a few years ago and one of the ideas that we played around with was this idea of of a person being a uh, employee of apple and google at the same time Mm. or something and something at the same time and you don't see that yet, um, right. but you do see it with a super consultants. One thing that I did see recently that kind of blew my mind was the fact that recent computer science engineers do these sort of like uh, internships, both at, at multiple companies, and they almost do them like subsequently. So that like there was a there was kind of a posting where it's like, oh, I'm now part of Microsoft and Apple, like for wow. yeah. for four four months I'm doing. So it's kind of the precursor to this idea. I've also heard of externships, right? Where a com- where you could you you go on sabbatical, you 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 do part time at another university if you're teaching at one, or you go work at another company to gain some expertise and then bring it back. But it's beneficial to both companies in that way because it's like an agreed upon set amount of time. But what you're talking about is like 
two different contracts, one person. Yeah, I think, I mean, workplace ultimately is kind of like a physical, a physical result of uh, like a human resource policy or culture. Mm -hmm. So I think we still don't really know what the future holds in terms of those policies and in terms of those cultures. And it, it'll be really interesting. I think with the companies that have now become fully remote, what does that actually mean from a spatial perspective mm -hmm. is, is to be determined. I think one interesting thing that I'd love to test out is whether... Um, whether a company just buys kind of a, a retreat center, whether it buys Esalen, for example, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden anyone can come into Esalen whenever they need to and work there. And you have to kind of, I mean, we probably have to book in, there's probably logistics and stuff like that. But one of the interesting things as well, what if, what if um, the real use of space, physical space was um, buying retreat centers or, or buying interesting things, or maybe it's, it's a cruise ship and you're able to book time in a cruise ship. I don't know, but yeah. I think those are the sort of things that I'm way more interested in and way more excited about than like a hybrid office that has movable walls. And what's interesting about that is like companies are already spending the money to do the one thing. And if you just take that kind of given off the table, you still have that same amount of money to do lots of other things with or just repurpose it so it's not yeah. like these ideas are off the table for most companies it's not at all and i think a lot of companies should be looking at these as opportunities to you know i don't i hate to say it like come out of this on the other side in a different position but but have a different approach and mm -hmm. the only way to do that is to start now so having these kinds of ideas and not and not setting getting back to normal in famous podcasting air quotes as the ideal you want to get back to better and so what is better for you it could be like you really have to re you have to learn to question why you've done things the way that you've done them for so long because it's probably just band-aid on top of band-aid on top of band-aid on top of band-aid and and it was working but is it ideal for your endeavor is is kind of right. a, you got to re rethink that from the from the ground up I think there's also, like you mentioned, there really is um, not only a rethinking, but kind of uh, you have to completely retool your culture. So I think what will happen is most companies will probably end up doing the easy thing and go back to where they were. For those that are fully remote, that for those that have kind of taken the big jump, this is it will be really interesting to see where they go. But they're going to find that they're going to need to, if you read sort of the literature on um, remote, all remote companies, one of the things that perhaps folks haven't really talked about was the fact that all remote companies prize written documentation. So they are what um, anthropologists call low context culture. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of their uh, collaboration happens in a written form. A lot of their collaboration happens asynchronistically. And they are really good at documentation. They have created models. They've created tools to make sure that everybody is aware of what's happening asynchronistically. And then they're very intentional on when they meet. Now, what happens is if you're a company where you've built software off of um, kind of an agile method, where you're not prioritizing documentation, in fact, you're, you're deprioritizing it actively, then you have a big problem because you've trained your entire teams to only work in this particular way. And you didn't hire people that were good writers. So I think when it comes to this movement to all remote, uh, when you were all in person, this is where it gets really interesting because you have to either retrain your workforce to be better communicators via written form, or you have to hire new people. Replace and I think them, that's... Yeah replace them. I think, you know, that is the, I think that's probably a, another misconception. So you've got, you know, the, the fact that focus on collaboration, it doesn't happen. Uh, you know, it, ha it happens on the spectrum. The fact that you've got this commodification of the office and you need to really think differently. And the fact that you need to retrain your workforce for kind of a low context environment. I think those are going to be really interesting, really interesting things to see where they all land. Yeah, the examples that that come to mind when you talk about this, you know, ability to function from like a written standpoint is that that's pretty much like the GitLab model, like from what I've read. And then also I think of like Basecamp, who, you know, they've mm -hmm. always been a remote company. They wrote the software to solve their own problem and then 
turn that into software as a service for everybody else and intentionally writing everything down so that everybody knows every decision that was made and operating that way intentionally, which allows them to operate asynchronously. And so, again, I kind of go back to the idea of having physical environments and forcing, basically, people to have some kind of location association with where an office Mm -hmm. is versus the companies that decide intentionally to not do that. Uh, And if those companies that don't do that can really get the top talent because you can be anywhere, then the companies who are forcing people to have some kind of location association with them are, by definition, not getting top talent anymore. Yeah, I think for the most if part. you are, for, for, for the most part, I think like if you are doing something really innovative, like whether you're like a quantum computing company or you where you have to be physical or you're, or you're a company that's doing climate change work or really innovative, I think you'll still get top talent because your mission and, and what you're doing is so um, provocative and interesting. Mm-hmm. But for many people that are just doing kind of everyday work, which is, which is nothing to be embarrassed about. It's, it's amazing. Um, I think you'll find folks that uh, you will get, you will probably get a little bit of a challenge when you're competing with all remote teams. Yeah. And I think, so it, it, we go back to like, well, what's the physical response to that? And what's the physical reality of a world where everybody is distributed and where a world where everybody is kind of working in this collective way uh, if we kind of look further down um, the, the the future pipeline, for, look down the future cone, um, uh, and I, I think like you know there's there's something that really intrigues me is this idea for pop up infrastructure or this idea of a radically different world in in a world where change is super rapid, um, and so that's kind of another topic that uh, we can talk about. Or I, that sounds fascinating to me. I, I have an example. It's not really pop-up infrastructure, but I, so so I want you to start, and then I want to throw this this out as an interesting potential example if it all works out in my the way I, I think it might. But so so you you have been talking about this kind of idea of pop-up inf- infrastructure from like these vertically integrated company type examples. Somewhat, yeah. Okay. So I would love to see. I think I'll preface this. I would actually love to see a Katera for infrastructure that is lightweight, modular not and, and kind of has a very specific shelf life. So I would love to see a Katera where it's not just ADUs, but it's like ADU offices or mm-hmm. ADU mm-hmm. Um, yoga studios or pop-up ghost kitchens. I would love to see kind of what does that look like? Because right now when it comes to Katera, they're still very much building in the, in the same sense of the past. So the reason I asked for this is because we're starting to see it. There's this huge trend of kind of like, I mean, change, expediting change and things like that. And I've always been very interested about the idea of how could you, how might we build infrastructure like we build the internet? Mm -hmm. Is there something we can learn from how the internet is built that can be translated into um, infrastructure? And that's a very kind of like vague and poetic sort of idea. But I think, you know, the way the internet works is that they have kind of a high upfront cost and then they have marginal additional costs. They kind of have repeatable blocks of information, in mm-hmm. this case, code, mm-hmm. um, and and it's reusable and it's lightweight and it's iterated, iterated on kind of a continual basis. So it's not like how we build infrastructure. Right. There's kind of like a very set shelf life. And so I, I really think there's kind of a world in which we have kind of a barbell approach of infrastructure where we have things that are very lightweight, modular, maybe mobile. Um, you, you see these with like the sprinter vans and the sprinter vans having like offices. Yep. Um, and then you have kind of like very long-term, 100-year, 150-year-plus infrastructure that is meant to be long-term. And and right now we kind of, we kind of design for that weird middle yep. where like it lasts maybe, maybe 20 years. But then at least for my, uh, for my example, in terms of office space, like you build these offices and in, in three years you need to completely rebuild them. And yeah. so you're pulling out draw, drywall and you're pulling out carpet. That is actually pretty great carpet, but it just, it's no longer serving its, its purpose. And you're filling it with landfill and, and you're filling it into the landfill because you can't reuse it. And so there's this huge problem with regards to this. So I wondered like if there's a way in which we could be like a little bit more intentional and just really think about, okay, 
this is only going to last for five years and this is going to last for 150 and maybe there's no in between. And you kind of see it a little bit in like homes in Japan where they've, they've been very explicit in the way in which they build. And they know for a fact that this home is really only for that generation and for only that family. Um, so I'm wondering if there's something there we can learn. Yeah. It's like an expiration date, right. That has to be built right. into the, it's an, it's an interesting idea because it has a, a very sustainability minded aspect to it, right. Where it's like, you determine what's going to happen to this thing when the shelf life is complete. And and it's absolutely not going in a landfill. It's going to be repurposed. It's going to be taken apart. It's going to be recycled. Like whatever the whatever those things that are deemed upon creation actually happen, maybe even contractually at the end of that to make sure that that happens so that you get that full cradle to cradle kind of a timeline for that thing. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, we we live in places and we just modify slightly over time, or we add an ADU because grandpa's got to move in, but then grandpa's there for 10 years, and then what? Or we need an office now because of pandemic, but we don't need it in three years because that's changed now, right? Mm-hmm. And and so then what happens to those things? And, and I don't right. think that there is that level of intentionality being applied to those. Right. And I mean, the, what you're mentioning with these ADUs is, is probably the first thing on the horizon. Um, all of a sudden, you can at least like have space on, on demand, right? So your first ring of that was really kind of the WeWorks and you would get space on demand. But all of a sudden, now you can have your own space on demand. Right. What does that actually look like? Um, and I think we'll see... I've always considered ADUs as kind of a precursor to innovative, like they're like a testing bed for innovative, innovative construction methodologies because they're so small and they're little products. And I think we'll see like space as a product. And I don't know what that, what that ends up being, but I've seen everything from like a little yoga studio ADU to obviously an office. I think the, I think we haven't really found what the architectural, oh my gosh, it's going to sound like the most architect thing, but like, I don't think we found the architectural ramifications of ghost kitchens yet, which are another byproduct of these like need for lightweight infrastructure. Um, so I think there's going to be a, a, a really interesting field for both architects and builders and so forth in the future when it comes to kind of modular, decent, highly decentralized kind of infrastructure. We just don't have those kind of solutions. So so the example that I alluded to before we jumped into this was, uh, have you, are you aware of the Mr. Beast, um, one of his latest, he's a, he's a YouTuber, he's got 50 million yeah. followers and basically shows that, I mean, his, this latest example, basically he's done all of these kind of really interesting giveaways, whether it's cars or money, or I'm going to buy you a this, or I'm going to buy you a that. It's, it's very kind of philanthropic in a way. It, it's all in mm-hmm. it's also not philanthropic in that it's it's trying to get clicks and eyeballs and all that kind of stuff right and, and a social right. media following but using each kind of event let's just call it as leverage for the next even larger event and now he's at the point where he launched his own food chain mm-hmm. without owning any of it himself so kind of an uber kind of an airbnb model where he's created a platform by linking together existing food provider kitchens, right? Like Buca de Beppo and some other ones that are within his his network that he started to create. And then linking those up with DoorDash and Grubhub and all of those types of food procurement services that are app-enabled, right? Um, and mm-hmm. with his 50 million followers created his own menu that those existing kitchens now provide based on his ingredients, his recipes, his menu. There are no physical locations at all. There is a video that he put together where they basically put up some fake signage one day and had miles long of free food giveaways to kind of promote this. But but there are no physical locations. Like that was just for that one video that they did to kind of hype this thing and, and launch it. It's all enabled through existing delivery services, which are all app-enabled, and through Mm -hmm. existing infrastructure kitchens that probably were seriously hurting because of COVID, and now they're not. So there's all kinds of interesting kind of new ways to tie things together using existing infrastructure, whether it's digital or physical, 
to create new opportunities for things like this. And I, I almost wonder, you know, because the mm-hmm. ultimate sustainable move is to reuse, right? Whether it's, right. A, you know, and, and there's tons of existing space out there, whether it's slightly used or not used at all. You know, there's a lot of it. And cities don't know what to do with this space. Like that to me is kind of a missed opportunity when we're talking about these new ways of delivering architecture or space as a product is like, there's already so much space out there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why can't right. we just use that? You know, uh, that would be very sustainable thing to do instead of building new and, and throwing stuff away. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the counter argument is built because it was built for another purpose and yeah, it's totally. hard to, to, to change that. I think, you know, if you have something like this, uh, Mr. Beast, situation you obviously your ideal is is to create a space like you essentially you'd want to create a ghost kitchen because it's your it's it's the most efficient because your drivers only have to go to one place they don't have to go all over the place and you're able to drive this level of efficiency so i think it sounds like what he's doing is is generally pretty interesting and cool i i think we haven't yet to see what the spatial ramifications of that are are yeah. But it does bring a really neat, like it does bring a really cool sort of um, link back into this kind of idea of an integrated, uh, like integrated space or integrated even GC or an integrated company where all of a sudden this guy is using, you know, you have kind of a linear business, which you build something and you sell, I don't know, donuts or something. So you've built this build business and you sell donuts but you don't really control the relationship with your customers. You may with through marketing and things like that. But what this guy has been able to do is really fascinating where he's kind of like created this layer on top where it's this like relationship layer where he's really like created this intimate relationship with his customers over time through these videos. And now he's going backwards to, to monetize that to a certain degree in a different way right. than he used to be. Oh, yeah. Right. And yep. he's going, he's going, he's selling a product kind of backwards. And you see that with a few people, you know, the like celebrity is selling different products that right. are there. But I think this is one step further because it's, it has to do with uh, YouTube. It has to do with this new model of food delivery. It ultimately has some interesting kind of philanthropic uh, results as helping restaurants. So I think he's onto something really interesting um, where he essentially became a platform and he's kind of moving backwards to create products off of that platform that only serves to improve his platform. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't wait to see how he leverages this to do the next thing. And, and what's interesting about, about this is that, He's 22 years old and, Mm -hmm. and to have the ability to create that level of following and then to do interesting things with it, because basically I guess what he, what he's showing is that attention is the most valuable asset that a brand can have today. And I wonder how that translates to space and architecture and workplace and things like that, because I think it potentially does but but it shows that this this attention that he has over people is valuable especially when coupled with technology and kind of this digital infrastructure that that we now have the ability to deploy at scale it's right. a very interesting kind of mix of ingredients that he's been able to put together with his team so i yeah. don't know food for thought i mean think about think about Quite that literally. listeners out there yeah <laughs> pun, <laughs> pun not intended yeah the attention bit is really interesting because, well, I mean, what was the past? Like, what was, I guess, if you built a cathedral in the past, you were also kind of gunning for attention, mm. um, a, di- a different form of attention. I I wonder if it's all that different. I do, I do think that when it comes to this sort of like new modern ways of attention, because obviously we're in the world of attention as well in a weird way in the workplace where you're really trying to make sure that someone is not distracted and and one thing that we really notice is that attention is super fluid and it's super hard and it's uh, and it kind of switches. So there's this high rate of change and high rate of switching. Um, and I'm not sure whether, you know, there's all these kind of studies that say that our span of attention has decreased over the past 50 years and so forth. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but mm-hmm. regardless, there's way more stuff 
gunning for your attention. Yeah. Um, and in the past, that sort of stuff was physical. You would happen across a cool house or a cool building. But now all of that stuff is digital. So the way in which you're gunning for that attention is is more or less digital. So not only is it different in terms of its form, and it's also different perhaps in terms of its frequency. And so I don't know what the spatial ramifications of that are and uh, and what that looks like. It certainly isn't the fact that, you know, you have far louder architecture um, or or architecture that lends itself to more digital kind of manifestations, whatever yeah. that means, yeah. sort of AR architecture. But um, yeah, there's a there's definitely a, a weird sort of world that we're living into uh, or heading into. But I think it'll be really interesting to see. It's not every day I get to talk to somebody who works at a big tech company. So, and you can feel free to totally blow this off. But is do you have thoughts about that from a technology standpoint, as far as the number of things vying for our attention on a daily basis? You know, it's you got all these communication apps running. You've got the, the calendar running. You've got notification centers. You've got you've got it on your screen. You've got it in your pocket. You've got it on your wrist. Like, is that a layer to the research that you guys are doing in your lab as well? I mean, it sounds like you're you're looking for ways to limit distraction to keep people doing what they do best. So I'm just wondering how all that plays into it, or or if it doesn't yet. Yeah, I think with regards to really the future of work and, and workplace, I think there's probably some ethical considerations or probably some health and mental health considerations. Those are things that we don't dive as much into, although it is pretty obvious that if you do get distracted, um, it is really hard to get back into those states. And so we're really curious about what are the things that let you stay in um, uh, and stay in various types of flow state. Um Sometimes flow is not actually what you want to be doing, but for for some professions, you do want to be in a flow state. And the the nature of flow and the idea of flow, and there's a whole bunch of literature on on flow states. It really is about this kind of mastery of things. So you're a master of the the task, and you're able to be in flow. This is really about um, kind of some of the work that is done on athletes. Mm -hmm. So we did look. We have looked in a little bit about like what is the brain when it's in flow, when, it, when it's being distracted and so forth. Um, but it is a real challenge because you don't want pure, like you don't want to have someone that is completely undistractable because sometimes you want someone to be bothered because you want the other person to be unblocked. Mm-hmm. So there is uh, there is kind of a, you know, from an individual standpoint, you obviously want to minimize distraction, but from a kind of group standpoint, sometimes you, you do want that distraction or the healthy kind of distraction. So we do think about that a little bit. Um, and obviously there's, there's digital solutions to that where you manage your own time and there's like kind of nifty things where you can turn off notifications mm-hmm. and there's various forms of, of, of things that turn off notifications. Um, but there's there might be other solutions in the works where perhaps it's like an object that helps you turn off notifications or it's the way in which a space is designed such that it uh, promotes the healthy kind of distraction and then doesn't promote the unhealthy kind of distraction. Yeah, it's a it's a weird world, right, to have to navigate that. It seems like everybody's kind of navigating that individually. I mean, everybody has a different set of distractions potentially right you're talking about like we've got homeschooling kids right now we've got them on zoom calls we've got the various things going on in in our location in our community um the stuff that's happening at work uh there's so Mm -hmm. many kind of inputs to that that everybody's kind of dealing with it at various levels of success or or not. So I, I always wonder if what, like how, how would a big tech company handle that when they're the ones who are also (laughs) in some ways, like putting that stuff out there for people to have to then be forced to navigate. Right. I think making it easier to make your own choices is probably the big, big thing. Um, So obviously I think some of the new technologies that are coming into play will have the ability for, you know, turning off notifications or automatically turning. So it's maybe maybe reducing the the friction to be able to to turn off things and to turn off completely is really the the case. So um, maybe there is a world in which you can easily go somewhere to focus Mm -hmm. or you can easily block it somehow with some sort of pop-up thing. I don't know, that seems a little bit more ridiculous, but 
I think the other question is when it comes to distraction is like when you are kind of overhearing a conversation of your own group, you don't actually notice that as distraction. You mm -hmm. actually think it's useful. For, nine times of the 10, it's actually quite useful to hear the banter of those around you that you work closely with. So that's not the distraction you're really trying to get to. It's the distraction of kind of like folks that are meandering in the hallway in front of you or um, uh, unnecessary groups. For, so I think when it comes to those kind of distractions, you can actually be really intentional on where you place people together and place the people that work together in their kind of blocks. And then um, you start to cluster people into areas and that manages distraction in a, yeah. in a way. So there's spatial solutions um, there's also probably a whole host of hardware solutions we haven't even thought about, and there's probably a whole host of software solutions, but they're just, uh, you know, they're, they're probably not fully there yet. Um, I, I think a lot of it is also the fact that we're, we're now just perhaps like, we're just, we're just so inundated with things and especially with COVID and the world and where it is right now that we're distracted continuously and uh, we don't have these deep focus, deep folk, like deep work right. times. Right. And that is something that I don't think space can solve for, at least right. entirely. Yeah. I mean, that's the idea of like a phone booth or a small conference room, right? Like you're just going to go book it and you're going to lock the door. <laughs> right. But that's, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, thinking back to when we were in offices, um, we had a lot of success by putting team of people who were working on a project to force them to sit next to each other. So obviously, mm -hmm. you know, the standard architecture open office where, you know, there's cubes in rows and it was like, okay, no, pull people out of their cube, put them at what we called a pod. And now for the next X amount of years, they're going to sit together because they're all working on this project. And we saw yeah. huge increases in productivity, knowledge capture, all of those things that we're talking about being like really useful to transfer information and knowledge between people in an office. And I, we were before the call, I was talking about like that being a, a big need that I'm seeing for the, especially for like the emerging professionals who mm -hmm. don't have that opportunity right now, right? They're not sitting next to that senior project architect. So they don't get to overhear how they're dealing with that flashing detail that they've done 50 times or a hundred times right. because they're isolated. They're working in isolation and they don't reach out to call them and ask them a question, or it's not the kind of thing you would even ask a question about. It's just something you would hear somebody complaining about and it would be useful mm -hmm. information. Like you just mentioned. Um, I am interested yeah. in software that can potentially start to solve that because in the hybrid office environment that we're talking about there's going to be plenty of times when that emerging professional schedule does not line up with that senior project architect and that senior project architect just not going to be in the office as much mm -hmm. because they don't need to be because they have a different lifestyle they have different requirements the emerging professional who sits alone in a, an apartment all day probably wants to be in an office right so you could see how right. potentially i'm hoping that there's going to be some kind of like just open channel software type mm. stuff that happens where people can wander in and wander out when when it's right and they can just overhear conversations that happen I, and i don't know that that's the right solution i'm just hoping that it starts to lead right. us back toward that kind of i'm, I'm learning through osmosis scenario mm -hmm. that is super important yeah there's i mean there's a few things that i've seen that are super interesting in that sense like the first thing is obviously, you know, there's a bunch of these companies and, and you've seen these in, in countless vision decks where you have kind of a portal, like an always on portal where right. you essentially um, kind of th learn through osmosis in that sense. Um, I've seen some stuff that's really interesting uh, with a company called High Fidelity that's doing kind of spatial audio. So you can essentially kind of listen into a conversation um, in your kind of a 2D avatar uh, in a 2D space and you can join other groups in a, in a fake floor plan. I think that's kind of interesting where you see like space coming into, yeah, into totally. 3D space coming into 2D space. Right. I, I think we'll probably, we're, we will eventually get at a point where embodied collaboration will be just as good remote. We will get there. It's probably a number of years out there. Yeah. And I think the most promising and and it's gone through so many kind of twists and turns is really the AR and VR world. 
Uh, I did some work in spatial um, in Magic Leap, and it's just an, a different experience altogether. So yeah. I think we are probably eventually. I think the the reality is we'll have a world that's increasingly decentralized, increasingly remote, and you'll have talent all over all over the world. I don't know to what degree whether there'll be clusters or whether they'll be mm -hmm. like fully decentralized. But I think you're right in the sense that when you are young, and not only do you want to advance professionally but you also want to have like a community of people, mm -hmm. those solutions get really hard. But I, I want to counter with the fact that like many people, at least in my, my age, I'm not even young anymore, but like many people in kind of Gen Z, Gen Z world, I think we can't assume that what we define community is what, what they define community. Yeah. Like I think we assume that, of course, you need embodied um, collaboration, and of course, you need to be all in the office because you know innovation happens when you're all together. But I think actually, I've been I've been kind of convinced otherwise that the 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 notion of what is um, community and the notion of what is collaboration are vastly different the younger you are, yeah. um, and and that is going to be interesting to see where those solutions kind of come through. Um, one thing that you mentioned that reminded me, so, like something that's really interesting is when I think about the architect profession, we'll always have a, a caveat where we talk about the architect profession. Um, architects, that's the first thing they love talking about is the architect profession. Yeah. But I think what's, what's, what's really interesting is I actually think there's a lot of things that architects have done uh, natively with regards to their office designs and how they think about uh, kind of like tech heavy innovation that uh, is finding its way into the tech world. There was this like article many, many years ago where Ram Koolhaas was saying that architecture kind of fed into tech and maybe that was through design or something, but you know, the idea of these kind of like design thinking workshops or even the way in which you have studios set up or like uh, office space set up, I think a lot of it was coming from, you know, this kind of profession and mm -hmm. we saw elements of that in tech. You can think about, you know, I've been to many tech offices and mistook th mistook them as architect yeah, offices because right. they were kind of in the same same lab. Because the idea was really how do we um, how do we have these pods of people collaborate really well in this really highly technical puzzle piece type of um, task. So I think that's a really interesting world. Yeah. And obviously roundabout going back to the the kind of professions and, and young folks. Um, I want to also kind of push back in the sense that, for at least in my experience with software engineers, many software engineers, at least when they're young, actually find pinging someone or messaging them on chat, uh, chat or Slack is far easier and far better than going and tapping them on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. I think we, again, it's, it's a case of like, um, in my case, like millennial um, kind of assumptions that Folks, everybody will be comfortable in tapping someone on the shoulder. But the reality is, um, when you've when you've lived in the age of the internet and your your kind of form of communication and interaction is mostly through the internet, mediated through this sort of source, then you're actually more comfortable doing certain things that perhaps you and I wouldn't think are the most obvious ways to do things. Absolutely, yeah. It's funny because it's like. I'll be talking to my kids and I'll say, are you going to go do this thing? And they're, and they just pull up their phone and they, and they're like done. And it's like, you didn't actually have to go do it. Right. Like there wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't required. The way that you were thinking about that is a completely different way of thinking than I actually just did it. So right, you're, you're right. absolutely right. And, um, I think it also depends on office culture. It depends on personalities. It's, it's a very mm -hmm. complex kind of a thing, right? Because, you know, I'm, I'm talking about this potential software solution that could enable people to walk into a virtual room and have conversations. And at the same time, I'll think like, man, I hated all those distractions every five minutes. And so, like, obviously, this kind of thing is opt-in. So if it's opt-in, is anybody going to show up? I think there's so many layers to this that that are, you know, you just have to experiment and see what works and what doesn't work and be open to constantly experimenting with this kind of thing and failing like you're just going to fail at it a lot right <laughs> until you right. find until you find something that actually works and then who knows how long that's going to stand up for
Right. And I think that the failing, like, you know, architecture doesn't lend itself to rapid iteration, right. like buildings don't get iterated rapidly. Right. So I think one thing that will have to happen at some point, or maybe it doesn't, but this comes back to kind of the, the idea of like these lightweight solutions, it's far easier to rapidly iterate an office concept with, um, you know, things that only last a few months than it is to to do kind of a full build out, or it's far easier to rapidly innovate or rapidly iterate rather in ADU building than it is to, than to do a rapid iteration of a, a multifamily building, which is impossible. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's interesting to uh, like maybe, maybe food for thought for, for a, a part two sometime would be right. Like we, I've talked about that a lot on the show, which is like design is hypothesis in the architecture world for the most part, for the part of the process that architects are really involved in is the very front of the project. And, and if, after that part is done, you know, after the, the buildings built, or maybe even before that, when the drawings were submitted, I don't know, um, they were done and they're on to the next project mm-hmm. and they're not learning and continuing that conversation or that relationship beyond that point to actually s- prove or disprove the hypothesis. And so when you are mm-hmm. talking about like an ADU and you're talking about space as a product, and that really can be an iterative design process, there's a lot that can be done there to improve it over time and prove those hypotheses and those and those prototypes really matter then right whereas if it's a giant multifamily housing prototype i mean you're just going to go do another prototype because it's going to be a different site different environment different so many different things um yeah Mm -hmm. it's an interesting it is kind of a totally different problem set that a lot of architects are working with so this whole idea of space as a product is really intriguing and the world needs great architecture right like there is a huge need for a lot more space to be des- designed by a lot more architects and uh, because it really does influence culture. It influences society. There's, it, it makes our communities better. So for us to keep thinking about designing one project hypothesis and then another one hypothesis and then another one, you never go out at scale. And so it's really intriguing this idea of space as a product and, and how that can be iterative and how it can get better d- more better design out into the world <laughs> at scale. Yeah, we have to, I think like I, I kind of ended some of the work, the writing that I did, the, the one that we referred to and we'll put it in the links um, is I really kind of ended it with the fact that we need to think in a more infrastructural way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. The world needs better. I wouldn't say architecture. I think the world needs better infrastructure. Mm. And I would almost say, I mean, you you kind of jumped the assumption where therefore the world needs more architects. And I would counter and say, well, maybe, maybe not. Like maybe the world needs more, I don't know, product designers and, mm-hmm. and folks that are in construction. Maybe the world needs more, I don't know, like modular housing gurus or or wizards or whatever ends up being their their work kind of their title so i think uh, you're right i think the world definitely needs more iterative or, or the at least built space needs to be more iterative i have a sinking suspicion that just with the rise of all these incredible companies that are not led by architects that are led by tech uh kind of um, tech founders or people in the tech world, I have a sinking suspicion that perhaps the solution won't come from architecture purely, yeah. but will actually come from technology mm-hmm. um, and will actually be an example of what like kind of Mr. Beast is doing, where you have a, a company that owns a relationship, a platform, and then it goes backwards to build something other than that. And ultimately, there's only so much you can do with regards to pure, there's, there's, there's the the low hanging fruit, so to speak, of the digital world have already been picked clean. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to go backwards. So, you know, you see that a little bit with Netflix creating its own movies. Mm-hmm. You see that with Uber creating its own cars, um, Mr. Beast creating his own food, um, food situation or food kind of product. And so I think what we'll see is some sort of platform stepping backwards and creating its own spatial solutions. Yeah. We have no, no idea what those are. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that architects kind of lead the forefront, but I think they're really there for the ride. Yeah. Interesting. 
very provocative. I appreciate that. Um, It's good food for thought again for that terrible pun once more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I really appreciate your time today and your generosity. And I I love the way that you're thinking and putting it out there and continually asking questions uh, and engaging with this community. And uh, I I would love it if you want to give everybody a way to connect with you online and let everybody know how they can follow along with the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at cat dove, K A T D O V. And then, um, my website is just dovgencodesign.com. Uh, and we'll link to it cause it's, uh, quite a mouthful when <laughs> it comes to my last name. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Uh, links to everything that we've talked about will be in the show notes link to cat's Twitter and her website and the article that kind of kicked this whole thing off where she presented to the AIA with some of those thoughts in it that we just touched on at the end there. So thanks, Kat, so much. I really appreciate it once again. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.